Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of The Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. I hope you had an opportunity to listen to Episode 5, starring Army veteran Dan Rose. Like all of us who have unfortunately endured a spinal cord injury, we all have our story. And Dan's is quite different than any I have had the opportunity of highlighting here on the podcast to date. It, along with 51 other episodes, can be found on my website, which is www.quadcast.org. Some of you, yes, you know who you are, have some catching up to do, so log on, haha. Okay, let's get started with this week's installment of the podcast, which, although mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by an SCI, is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. If you look up the word advocate in the dictionary, you find this definition among others, quote, a person who speaks or writes in support or defense of a cause, end quote. My guest this week, Jen French, has been doing just that ever since her SCI endured on a snowboarding run accident. Jen, as you will hear, wears many hats, such as Paralympian, author, publisher, sailor, founder of important organizations on the cutting edge of SCI developments, and that is just the beginning. I am thrilled she took all of her hats off long enough for a wide-ranging conversation. And following this public service announcement from the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, the Paying It Forward with Jen French episode comes your way. And that, my friends, is next. Did you know that one in every 50 Americans is living with some form of paralysis? The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation wants to change that. They are dedicated to discovering cures for spinal cord injury by funding innovative research and improving the quality of life and health for all people living with paralysis. Make a difference, change a life, and redefine what it means to live with paralysis by joining the Reeve Foundation today. For more information, visit ChristopherReeve.org. The Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Today's care, tomorrow's cure. Welcome back to the Quadcast, your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. It is now time that I bring in the aforementioned Jen French. She is an author a publisher, an advocate, and spinal cord injury research program programmatic panel member. Wow, that's a lot of hats you wear, Jen. First of all, thank you for coming on and welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Oh, my goodness. We've been trying to put this together for a while, and I must give a tip of the cap to our good friend, Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson, who, who brought us together. Um, he's remarkable, don't you think? He, he sure is. And uh, talk about somebody that wears a lot of hats. Trevor sure does. And uh, I'm always impressed on what he's able to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jen? Where did you grow up and what were some things you enjoyed doing as a young person? Yeah, well, um, I grew up in Northeast Ohio outside of uh, Cleveland. And, uh, you know, I was an outdoor kid, you know, we, we did a lot of, you know, between building forts in our backyard and going, you know, canoeing and, uh, camping and, you know, anything that had to do with outdoors, we were out there. And I think it's more of our, our parents, 
didn't want us sitting around watching TV and, and got sick of us and said, go out and play. And we would figure it out from there. Right? So you weren't <laughs> sitting in your room on your cell phone, huh? Did I touch? No. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I'm dating myself, but uh, of course, no, not at all. We didn't play video games or we, you know, it was, it was always an outdoor thing for us. And, uh, you know, as I, as I grew up and went to college and, um, you know, kind of outdoor components world, a piece. Yes. Of, so uh, a bit of a tomboy. A bit. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. The outdoors is fun. You know, I've uh, a bunch of my guests, same thing. Um, ha- I have had the last couple had grown up in Wisconsin and told me they were outside all the time. You know, they were doing stuff in the woods and building forts and, uh, you know, in uh, fishing and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a lot of outdoorsy stuff. So that's good to hear. Um, it was, yeah. And my, my dad, I have to attribute to my daddy was really big on us going to learning about the park systems that we have here in the U.S. and really appreciating them. That's that's really good. That's something that I, I'd like to, um, I haven't had a chance to get to too many of the major parks in the in the States. And it's something that's on my to-do list, um, a, a long list like yourself. We were talking before, we have very long to-do lists. And so uh, that is something that I have to do. How about sports? Did you play sports growing up? I wasn't much of a of an organized sports person. Um, so, you know, what I did in high school, I was actually on the dancing squad. Um, so that's what I did in, in, in high school. But organized sports was not my thing. It was mostly, you know, outdoor recreation. Very good. Very good. How about now as you're getting a bit older and you're you're off to college, what is sort of the game plan? What are you thinking you're going to do with your life? <laughs> Well, my original for my undergraduate, I uh, wanted to become a pilot. So um, I went off to undergraduate school in Massachusetts to uh, get my pilot's license, which I did. Um, But I quickly learned that, you know, in that industry, when you first start off, it takes a long time for you to get to a decent salary. And uh, so I did get my degree in aviation science. Uh, but, uh, from there went on to get, um, my MBA and learned that the most important piece is the business side. That's where you can make more money. So actually, after I got my graduate degree, uh, the first company I went to go work for was a finance company, learning that it, you can make more money by financing airplanes than by flying them. So that's wild. I had uh, one of my best buds growing up in high school went to, um, Annapolis, the United States Naval Academy, and he was in line for flight school, but there was such a holdup and a backlog that he wound up flying helicopters. He used to fly. He used to say, John, I, I fly like a bus with with uh, propellers on it. It's this huge thing. And so, um, yeah, I got to hear all about aviation and, and all of that stuff. It's amazing. I had no idea. And all of the all of the write-ups I have on you, I don't see anything in here about you being a pilot. No, and actually, I haven't flown since my injury. That is definitely something that's on my bucket list. I know there's programs that do it, um, but yeah, it's definitely on my bucket list of things I want to go back and do. That would be great. Well, you mentioned your injury. Why don't we get into that? Can you tell us about the snowboarding incident, the accident, uh, what you remember before the accident, during, and in the immediate aftermath? Yeah, it's... uh you know, all of us have our injury points and we always, it depends on what we remember 
percent. And you're and you're right. We all remember different things, but. Uh, to set kind of the scenario for you, at the time I was working for a, a tech startup um, and the company had just gone public the week before. So um, if you're ever involved in, in bringing a company public, it's just madness before that happens. And uh, so this was my first weekend off since uh, the company had gone public. And there were about there was a whole group of us. We went up into the mountains and we rented a house slopeside. And uh, it's one of those weekends where, you know, you spend all day skiing and snowboarding and you spend all night drinking beer and playing poker. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what we did. So um, on this particular night, it was Friday, March 13th. Uh, there happened to be a full moon. And uh, if you ever skied at night under a full moon, it's absolutely beautiful because the trails just glow and it's, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. So at midnight, you know, about a dozen of us slapped on our skis and our snowboards and we went down the mountain to, to do a midnight run and uh, 11 made it to the bottom. I did not. I, uh, I was working the edges on my snowboard and hit a patch of ice, went down a 40 foot embankment, mm. kissed a bunch of trees and uh, came out as a quadriplegic actually. So um, it was my boyfriend who was, and my husband was uh, one of the folks at the bottom of the mountain and uh, and he saw that I didn't come, I wasn't coming down. So he uh, went back up trying to look for me and he found me in the ravine and uh, tried to call for help and, and get folks there. Uh, luckily there were snow groomers and uh, personnel got there pretty quickly. So it took about two snowmobiles and six rescue workers to get me out of the ravine. Wow. Um, what, what could have worked to my advantage is that it was really cold. I was hypothermic. Um, so I do remember waking up in the, um, in the ambulance being extremely cold. So part of the, the experience before I went into surgery, I was in and out of consciousness. They told me I was conscious the entire time, but I don't remember. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the accident. So I think it actually sits more with my husband because, you know, he was awake and, and uh, there for the entire accident. Thank goodness he found you. I, I've had folks on here who have unfortunately um, had accidents in the ocean where they've hit sandbars and, you know, you're underwater and no one can see you. And so um, they they were lucky enough to have people find them, lifeguards, family members, friends. It's thank goodness that your husband was able to locate where you were because it wasn't as if you were calling out for help, right? Well, I, I, it was. I had a really, apparently had a really faint voice. I remember being face down in the snow and looking up and seeing the moon. Um, I don't know how much, you know, how loud I was, but somehow he did hear me. So now you're in the hospital. What are the doctors telling you and how is that sort of sitting with you mentally? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I didn't go to a model care center. (laughs) I was up in a really rural area. Um, and it happened to be at that, that weekend was some conference of, you know, neurosurgeons. So, uh, they had a hard time trying to find a neurosurgeon to work on me, but, um, but yeah, it was, you know, we, so, so many of us go through that same cycle of denial and no, I'm going to be the one that beat this. And, um, you know, I was, I was no different from that. You know, at first it was really hard to accept. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought for sure I was going to be able to to lick this thing. Um, but like I said, I didn't go to a model center. I went to a small rehab center and most of my roommates were ages 70 and up. Um, and so me being in my 20s, it was 
a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, um, you know, being in rehab. Yeah. So uh, I think in the days when I went to rehab, I was in there for three months. So I was lucky. I got a lot of psychological counseling. Um, and I think that that tended to help with my acceptance of the injury. Sure. You know, I work at Kessler Institute, as you know, up here in New Jersey. And when I was injured, it'll be 31 years this coming August 19. I stayed for four months. And as the peer counseling coordinator, it's my job to go around to the newly injured folks that are there and to see if they're, you know, interested in speaking to someone who's kind of in their shoes kind of a thing. Um, because as you know, and I know, and folks who've had an SCI know this, these things are almost more mental to deal with than they are physical. Um, and the reason I bring that up is I'll go in and see somebody on a Wednesday and maybe I'll lose track of them or I've got a couple of other people and I'll, I'll stop back in two weeks later and they're gone. It's like the insurance companies are ripping these people out of there. And, and I mean, stays now. I mean, even folks that are on ventilators. I mean, sometimes it's a month at tops. And I don't know how they're prepared to go home. I certainly would not have been prepared to go home after three to four weeks or a month. Yeah. And you know what? That's a real tragedy in our U.S. system is 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 what we do for new injuries today. And, you know, hats off to you for being a peer mentor because I know the value that I had as a peer mentor was incredible. I mean, I learned how to pee in a public restroom because of my peer mentor. <laughs> I learned, well, how do you get on and off an airplane from mentor? You know, um, my first weekend away, I did in so much of rehab because the yeah. peer mentors really helps the practicality of it. And it's such a critical component. And I wish we valued it more yeah. in our healthcare system. I really do. You know, we like to say that, you know, it's one thing to talk to your doctor or your PTs and OTs, even family members, but you know, they're not in our shoes. And so it's, it's another thing to speak to somebody who's, who's been through the woods, if you will. And so, uh, you know, questions or concerns are just like, Hey, you know, what's it like? And so that's what we hope to provide. And, and I think we're making a difference with some of the folks that we've, um, we've had come through the process at Kessler. And so, um, how about Jen, tell us about, I see that you were an early user of an experimental implanted neural prosthesis, say that 10 times fast for paralysis. <laughs> Was that the stand and transfer system? And if so, tell us how it helped you. Yeah. So, you know, you know what, John, you know, when we're faced with, there is no cure for spinal cord injury yet. I think a lot of us ask ourselves what's next and that's, that's what I did. And, um, you know, I, I understood technology. I didn't understand, you know, stem cells and, and different biologics that was beyond my kind of scope of being able to understand, but I understood technology and I understood what electrical stimulation was because I was using an FES bike and, uh, and, I found this study that where they were implanting uh, electrodes into the human body and, and um, using it for functional use. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have the freehand system that was used as a hand prosthesis for for years, and it, it was commercialized. But unfortunately, it was, it, the the company went out of business. But um, I used the stand standing system that was a relative of that system. So. Um, at the time, to be able to be a participant, I 
uh, asked, and and I went in for uh, evaluation. Um, and believe it or not, I was I was rejected at first because <laughs> they said, "Well, you're a woman, and we've never implanted a woman." And of course, you know, I had to rebuttal back and say, "Well, twenty percent of spinal cord injuries are women, so when are you going to implant one?" So, yes. Um, they did their homework, you know, rightfully to them, they did their homework, and they got back to me and they said, "Okay, come on in, we'll bring you in as a as a participant." Because there were a lot of concerns from the women's anatomy because of a lot of the electronics sitting in the abdomen, you know, what would it do for an unborn child and what would it do for the reproductive systems of women compared to men? Sure. So, and now what year know, was that? And and where was it implanted? <laughs> so it was 1999, okay. November of 1999, I was implanted. And uh, it's a study that's, that's done in, in Cleveland, Ohio. So I went back to my roots where actually my, my family was um, and my, my, Boyfriend at the time, we weren't married then, but we moved to we moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, to participate in the study. And uh, I was implanted in November, eight channels. Um, and I've been involved in that study for almost twenty four years now, and I now have twenty four channels, and uh, I still use it today. So um, I I have these uh, electrodes that are implanted into the muscle tissue, deep into the muscle tissue, where the peripheral nerve innervates the muscle. Um, and all those electrodes have leads that go up into like a pacemaker device that, that sits inside my abdomen. And all of that is implanted inside the body. So there's no wires protruding. And I use an external device to control it. So I use it to stand, to transfer to high places. Um, I'm exercising with it right now. <laughs> I can do passive exercises. I can use it for trunk control, for pressure. So prevention, there's a lot of uses that I have today of it, but, um, I, I, I like to say that I'm I'm very ex- I'm extremely fortunate to be able to be part of that study, and for I'm so grateful for the investigators and the funders to allow the study to go on for long term, so they could really have an idea of you know what does um, using electrical stimulation over long periods of time from someone's injury to to what type of benefits and what type of risks do we have to consider? So. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's integrated into my life now. <laughs> so you're the bionic woman. Um, in my own mind, <laughs> I, I guess I am. Yeah. You know, I wish I had like all the chips and the superpowers to jump over houses, but. Um, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So is, <laughs> is this part sort of tied in with um, a lot of the work that's being done in uh, Louisville, Kentucky? I, I had on Jared Nieder and his wife, Hannah, who was his caregiver yeah. and is now his bride. And he's doing a lot of the electrical stim stuff at Louisville. Is that sort of um, along the same lines as what you're doing? It's um, it's in the neurotechnology space, but it's a different methodology and it's a different mechanism, if you will. So mine are more contracting muscles. This is actually stimulating the central nervous system, okay. um, the, uh, what the epidural stimulation does. But I will tell you a little bit of history. Yeah. Because that the epidural stimulation systems, you know, they were developed early on, actually out of spinal cord stimulation, which has been is implanted and commercialized for pain. Um, but one of the pr- early predecessors of implanting electrodes into people with spinal cord injury into their spinal cord was a device called an oscillating frequency stimulator. And it was developed out of um, Purdue University uh, many, many years ago. And I remember this um, because we were working with a company 
uh, and really trying to get it approved. And what it was is it was a device where they put electrodes above and below the injury, implanted a device for a certain period of time, stimulating the electrodes, hoping that um, some signals will grow you know, within the spinal cord. I'm explaining this in very layman's terms. Yeah. But, um, I but need yeah, that. so it, 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 <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, it, was, it went all the way to the FDA and we were so excited that this, we, you know, we were able to really get something on the, um, onto the market. But, um, at the time this was early two thousands, the FDA was very different from what it is today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they didn't value the biggest, they didn't meet their endpoints for movement. You know, some people, gained maybe a level or two. Uh, but the significant gain, which wasn't one of their outcomes in the study, um, was more of a secondary outcome was sensation. And to measure sensation is very difficult. Sure. But, um, you know, we were trying to explain to the regulators how important sensation is to people living with spinal cord injury. And long story short, the company went out of business. But I think that was the first foray into, you know, where we are today with epidural stimulations. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 really stimulating the central nervous system uh, instead of just stimulating muscles. And I think it's a very exciting space. Yeah, things have right to now. start somewhere. So that was the uh, genesis of where we are today. Now, we mentioned at the top that you wear many hats. And two of those hats are as founders of some amazing and important organizations. The first is the North American SCI Consortium. And the other is the Neurotech Network. So I know they're both big and broad, but can you tell us a little bit about each and how they differ? Yeah. So um, the one similarity between them is that they're both uh, they're both nonprofits okay. here in the U.S. Um, so first with, with Neurotech, because I was just giving you our history of neurotechnology, um, Neurotech Network is a nonprofit uh, that started back in 2005 here in the U.S. It was the nemesis of um, the early ages of neurotechnology where a lot of people didn't know, uh, weren't even aware of cochlear implants or deep brain stimulators. So really, we started the Neurotech Network to help educate people living with a whole variety of neurological conditions about what type of devices and therapies and treatments there are. Um, either on the market or in clinical development, human clinical development. So we run an online free database where people can go and look for, for devices related to their condition. We do, um, we do a lot of kind of storytelling of, of some of these early day uh, adopters. We call them bionic pioneers, uh, and, it, and that's what I've written a book about. Um, and also we help developers of technologies um, really uh, – engage with people with lived experience. So we try to do a lot of that matchmaking to allow um, those who are developing the technologies to understand the critical nature of people living with the conditions, whether it's hearing impairments or Parkinson's disease or or ALS or stroke. You know, we try to make those connections. So that's how Neurotech Network came about. So um, Very important so that's my stuff. foray into the neurotechnology world. Yeah, and there's a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, 2013, when the Brain Initiative was launched here in the U.S., so mm-hmm. um, so that's that's my one hat that I wear. And then mm-hmm. um, the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium. There were 15 founding members. Um, one of them was myself, and uh, and really it was it's it's an effort to bring together a collective voice of people living with spinal cord injury across North America, and. Um, and we've grown, it started back in 2018, 
Uh, and t- today we're over 400 members. So we have members of people that are that are living with spinal cord injury, their family members or caregivers. Um, and we have a lot of organizations, what we call principal members. Those are nonprofit organizations that directly represent people living with spinal cord injuries. So things like United Spinal or the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation or Praxis are all members of the consortium. And we try to take on as a consortium some of those big systemic issues um, and and really try to help solve them for the spinal cord injury community across North America. So one of them was, you know, and helping to educate people about the research process and uh, embedding the voice of lived experience into the research process of spinal cord injury. So we just launched our free online course um, called the SCI Research Advocacy Course that you can take online and learn about the, uh, the process of, of research, of bringing something from an idea all the way to onto the market and into clinical care here in the United States and, and in Canada and Mexico. So Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's a great organization. Yeah. Jen, how can, if my listeners would like to, to learn more, maybe you could give us uh, the websites and also if they would like to dig into their pockets and perhaps help you with a donation or so, is that uh, allowable? And, and if so, how can they do that? It is to find out more about the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium. Our uh, website is our, our uh, abbreviations. It's called NASCIC, N-A-S-C-I-C dot O-R-G. Um, membership is free, so you can go online and join the consortium. Uh, we encourage people to do that. Uh, and from there, you can, if uh, you want to financially support us, you are welcome to do so as well as take donations from there. But um, we have a lot of learning opportunities and a lot of ways to engage um, being in the spinal cord injury community and connected to a lot of the nonprofits and the wonderful resources that they provide here, not only in the U.S. and Canada, but across North America. Terrific. I'm, I'm hoping that my... Uh... My folks will will take a look and and if they can, as I said, dig into their pockets, that would be great. Jen, how about how much research is being done? Um, Stuff that's aimed at the newly injured spinal cord folks, um, as opposed to an old dinosaur like me who's been in the game for 31 years now. The folks, I guess they would refer to that as a chronic injury. How much is done um, for folks like me? And, and you, I know you've been injured for a number of years, or is, is a, most of the focal point on the newly injured people? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I don't want to call us old, John. You know, I'm 25 years <laughs> post-injury this year. Maybe we're seasoned. Seasoned. Way to say okay, it. that's better. Uh, we, we've gained wisdom over the years. At least I hope we have. Yes, um, along with some grays. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um you know, I think we're at an exciting time for spinal cord injury, for pe- particularly for people that have chronic injuries. And the way that we define a chronic spinal cord injury is more than 12 months post-injury. Um, that's clinically how we define it. So not only for 12 months post-injury, but for you, that's 31 or maybe yeah. that's 25 years post-injury. Chronically chronic. We're at a <laughs> chronically chronic. Yeah, we're, we're at a really exciting time. There's a lot of development. Um, in the space for chronic spinal cord injury um, and a lot of research and development going on. Um, we're at exciting time that I've never seen. 
I've been injured of how much commercial development there is in spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really an exciting time. There's everything from epidural stimulation to development of, of new drugs and new therapies for bowel and bladder, um, for, for, you know, pressure sore prevention, for, um, the development for respiratory health. There's, there's a lot going on. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting time to really pay attention to research and, and what's happening. And, and I will say that, you know, we, one of the things that we did do in, um, for, through NASCAC is we developed a, a platform called sci-trials.org that makes it really easy to find clinical trials for people living with spinal cord injury. And people can go online, it's accessed for free. Um, it's a way to search and lay language and that way you don't have to know all the technical terms of, of clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and you can learn about clinical trials and create your own profile. And uh, so again, that's the, just a way to find out about the clinical trials and there is a lot going on in this space. So glad to hear that. That's music to my ears. We just had uh, the great Dr. Stephen Kirschbloom address our peer mentor uh, support group last month, and he was talking about stuff like that. He said, uh, look for, um, you can look for trials, but he said you have to be very conscious of, you know, what's out there because there's a lot of stuff that uh, there's people that will just sort of want to take your money and, and the study is bogus and whatnot. So I guess you you really have to, uh, you know, watch your uh, P's and Q's, as they like to say, with, with what you're looking into. Do you urge the same thing? I do urge the same thing. And that was part of the reason we built our platform is because we have review. We do pull from clinicaltrials.gov, but there's a lot of what we call bogus trials that are on there, meaning they're not legitimate. They haven't been reviewed by an internal review board. They haven't been, um, you know, had the rigorous uh, oversight. And even those that do ask for a lot of money from people, that is unethical. So um, it's, it, it part of we how the reason we built this platform is we have reviewers, and what comes out through the platform are think are trials that have been reviewed by our reviewers to make sure that it meets all those kind of eligibility and and uh, critical areas that that need to be checked before you should consider going into a clinical trial. So yeah, yeah I absolutely I stress that there's a lot of what we call medical tourism going on. And you know we're all desperate when we're injured. we want to we want to find that cure and you know, spending lots of money and going overseas isn't always the answer. Yeah. So. We got to watch out. As you said, we're, we want that magic bullet and uh, we're hoping that it's out there, but some people uh, get fixated on things and they wind up doing the wrong thing and it costs them a lot of money. And oftentimes it doesn't help them at all. It's sort of a mirage. So be on the lookout, everybody. It? Jen, I, <laughs> well, I, it causes a lot of hardship too. So it we, sure does. We yeah. Have to make sure that we, uh, we make the right decisions. No doubt. Now, I know that you're also an avid writer and a speaker addressing many different organizations. When you put pen to paper or when you're in front of folks on stage or on Zoom, what is your main message that you're trying to get across? Oh, it depends on the context, John. Okay. <laughs> trying to get them to cross is, you know what, you know, a part of it is really engagement. Um, part of it is really being a good advocate. You know, part of it is um, helping to learn and ways that people can learn about technology and how they can get engaged in the the research process or the development process. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredibly important. But it, that also goes not just for people living with conditions, but it also goes to the developers as well 
is for them to really understand what the lived experience is like. You know, uh, sometimes what they're taught in the textbook isn't always what really happens. Right. So, yeah, when I put pen to paper in writing, it's really funny. I um, always want to tell a story. Telling stories. And that's what I've done in a lot of the writings that I do is try to tell a story. Sure. How about now let's talk about some fun stuff. We'll get off of all of the <laughs> heavy-duty stuff. And tell us about sailing. I see that that's a very big part of your life. Where did your affinity for being out on the water come from? And how does it ultimately make you feel when you're out of your chair and you're back on the water again? <laughs> oh, John. Um, actually, I before my injury, um, on the second date with my now husband, um, he taught me how to windsurf. He took me windsurfing. At the time, we lived in uh, Massachusetts, and it was in Tiverton, Rhode Island, and he took me to this beach. And um, so it was my first time on a windsurfer. And I'll never forget this. I was out in the wind, and I kept falling over. And if anybody has learned how to windsurf for the first time, it's, it's pretty tough. Yeah. And, uh, and he was on the beach, uh, standing in knee-deep water, and yelling at me going, what are you doing, you idiot? The wind is coming from that direction, not that direction. You got to turn around. So, Tack. Yeah. And I ended up marrying the guy, which is crazy, right? So, but <laughs> um, that got my first kind of bug for being in and on the water. And uh, I was a, a windsurfer and a sailor before my injury. Um, so that's, and today after my injury, it was one of those things that I caught the bug on and um, I, I, one of my happy places in the world is is being on the water. Yes, uh, and uh, even today. And you're you're not just you're any run of the mill, you know, just going out on a Saturday or Sunday to uh, be one with nature. You're a Paralympian. Tell us how did that come about? How many games have you participated in, and what was it like to win a silver medal in 2012? Yeah. So. Um, I was not a sailboat racer before my injury, but I was introduced to it when I first moved to um, to here into St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, at the time, they were hosting the international world sailing event for, for people with disabilities. And I just went on the docks and was observing and thought, wow, this is amazing stuff. And, uh, and that's where I caught the bug for racing. Um, so I started racing many years ago after my injury and uh, there's two things that I love about the sport. One is I can leave my wheelchair on the dock and leave it behind. And, um, and kind of, get, you know, it's a, it's a sport where I can get out of a wheelchair and, uh, and that's what I find a lot of fun and developing the adaptations that you could put on the boat for a specific disability. But two is that we can develop those adaptations on a boat and I can go out and race against able-bodied people and beat them. You know, yeah. that's really fun, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's what makes it a really fun component is being able to race against able-bodied people. And uh, when we come back to the docks, they'll be like, I didn't know you were in a wheelchair. Like, <laughs> no, of course you wouldn't, right? Gotcha. <laughs> right? Exactly. Oh, that's great. Right. So that's how I caught the bug. And then, you know, from there, I, uh, I uh, was helping a friend of mine who was blind raise money for his Paralympic and he's been to three Paralympic games. And, uh, and then, you know, he said, you know, what? You, you've been racing a lot and you're pretty good, you know, and we, 
we paired up together and uh, did a campaign for um, the London Games in 2012, uh, the two of us. And uh, we're still friends to this day. And uh, so he was the blind guy on the boat. So he had the lens. Um, I was the quad on the boat, so I had the eyes. And uh, we worked together as a great team. And we won the seat to represent Team USA in London in 2012. That is uh, unbelievable. What a great story. Oh, my gosh. And you guys just fit together. As you said, you took care of one thing. He took care of the other thing. And uh, lo and behold, a silver medal came from that. Yeah, and a lot of the team, a big hats off to our spouses and to our support system. We could not have done that campaign because our spouses, without our spouses, they were involved a lot along the way. And, and we had a huge team of coaches and support teams and to just make that happen. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, for, for, for doing anything is really getting the right support people around you to make you successful. And, uh, you know, they made our job look easy, but there was a lot of, a lot of like work and a lot of people um, with their fingers in the game to, to get us to that level. How fulfilling is it to be the first woman with a disability to receive the Rolex Yachts Woman of the Year Award? That's amazing. Yeah, that was, it was a, a really memorable moment. <laughs> That's the best thing I can say. And actually, I, I will tell you a bit of a story on that. Um, in the U.S., they they offer the Rolex Yachts Men of the Year and the Rolex Yachts Woman of the Year. And... Um, Prior to the games, there was a sailor called Nick. His name was Nick Scandone. He uh, had ALS, and he was an amazing sailor. And he was the first person with a disability to uh, to to get that award of of being the Rolex Yachtsman of the Year. And um, when I was awarded that, and um, really thank a lot of my support staff, but it was such an honor that um, his wife Mary Kate uh, awarded the Yachts Woman of the Award to me because mm. um, Nick's ALS took Nick's life and uh, a few years before that. But it was really great for Mary Kate to, to give that award to me. So I think that made it all the more special to, uh, to be awarded that, that uh, honor, you know, to, to be the Yachts Woman of the Year. Absolutely. And as you said, to have it wrapped up with, with his wife giving it to you, just made it all the more special. That's terrific. How about, Jen, proper fitness? We know is not always easy for those of us who have had spinal cord injuries. It's not as if we can just sort of roll into, or for me, shuffle into a Jack LaLanne down the street or a, one of those fitness places. I mean, they don't know what to make of us when we go in there, and let alone how we can get on any of the equipment. And I know I have a hard time with stuff like that. So I applaud you for trying to bring accessible gyms to local municipalities municipalities. So tell us how goes that fight? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a neat opportunity that came out of uh, when we came home from the game. Um, there's an organization that I'm involved in here in the city of St. Petersburg, Florida. We have, we have an accessibility council um, called CAPI, and we take um, funds that are collected from people paying the fines from their tickets from parking illegally in handicapped spots. Uh. So we take those funds and we put them towards accessibility projects around our city. 
Stephanie uh, model. And this model was created in 1972. So mind you, it was way before the ADA. Mm. And we still do that today. And I sit on the committee and um, when I came back from the games, we helped to fund a wheelchair accessible use uh, outdoor gym in one of our parks. And uh, I, it's right near my house, so I, I, I love using that outdoor gym. Um, and it's where you can roll up to this equipment and use it um, and, and exercise. You don't have to get out of your wheelchair. And um, I met the company when um, we did the opening of that park. And, uh, and I ended up, long story short, I went to dinner with the CEO and uh, he was telling me about the mission of the company and what they were doing. And they work with municipalities around, uh, around the world, actually, and, and bringing outdoor gyms and outdoor fitness to, uh, to, to different areas of the world. And a lot of times we try to focus on those that are underserved areas um, for people that can't necessarily afford to go to a gym or have access to a gym. And, uh, and so I've been working with them ever since, but really helping to educate municipalities about the importance of accessibility when we put in outdoor gyms into the parks, um, meaning, you know, what type of equipment to pick, what, uh, what type of, um, uh, I would call it flooring, but what type of um, areas in the ground to put in for an accessible pathway. So a lot of that is educating about accessibility, but a lot of that is about inclusion. Because face it, John, you don't want to go to a gym that's only for people with disabilities. I want to go exercise with my able-bodied friends, right? I want to be alongside other able-bodied people, and I think that's the beauty. Of, of these outdoor gyms. Absolutely. So, uh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. We want to be right there with everybody else. Like, look at you beating um, all those able-bodied people in the in the sailing competitions. We want to be right there and measure up with all of, with everybody. Oh boy. <laughs> and aside from sailing, what what else do you do for fun? You and your husband do? Uh, do you travel? Do you what else do you do to uh, pass the time when you're not wearing four hundred hats? Oh, geez, John, you should look at our garage. Um, <laughs> we, we have, we have lots of toys. So yeah, we're, we're avid kayakers. So we're avid paddlers, um, and do a lot of paddling. We, uh, we go fishing, uh, we go snorkeling. We, um, we, I just got a, a mountain bike. So I got an assist mountain bike. So we're, we're doing a lot of biking. I hand cycle a lot. Um, geez, uh, you name it. You're we, busy. We probably have some type of sport that we're involved with. And again, it's always outdoor sports. And um, since living in Florida, I've really become a water baby. I used to ski and snowboard a lot when I lived up north. But being in Florida, we, we do a lot of water sports here. So, yeah, I've turned into a water baby. I take and, it you uh, don't miss those it. cold winters in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. Not at all, actually. And, uh, you know, I was living in New Hampshire when I was injured and, uh, you know, started homeless because I couldn't get out of my house. I couldn't even get on my street because I'd have to wait for them to snowplow yeah. um, to, to, to be able to, to get out. So, um, you know, I've been able to, the company that I was working for was flexible enough that allowed me to work from home when I was stuck from a snowstorm. And, uh, you know, working from home is such a popular thing today. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I will always uh, end my shows, Jen, with, with this one question. 
And it started a while ago. It was I was actually waiting for a doctor's appointment with one of my good friends from high school who, believe it or not, also had a really bad spinal cord injury probably about 15 years after mine. It's crazy. Two guys that were really tight in high school. And here we are both, you know, high quads. He was in a power chair. I'm lucky enough to be able to walk around. And so while we were waiting in the hallway, I just said to him, I said, hey, Tommy, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what's the first thing you would do? And I could see the smoke pouring out of his ears as he was trying to come up with an answer. And from behind me, there was an elderly woman that said, I would go out in my garden and and tend to my flowers. And then there was a guy in front of us who said, I'd go into the garage and tinker with my car. I was a big car guy. And I thought, wow, everybody's got an answer to that. And so I posed the question to you, Jen French, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what is the first thing you think you would do? Oh, can I tell you the first two? Sure. There's never a wrong answer and everybody has one. So let's put that out on the table. So, so yeah. So, um, yeah, wow. There's so much that I would want to do, right? But off the top of my head. The first the thing. The first thing I would do. The first thing I would do is I would have some wild sex with my husband <laughs> and then I would put on hiking boots and go hike a mountain. Cause that's the one thing I really miss. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the same answer that Kelsey Peterson gave me. She said, I would have sex and a lot of it. No apologies. Oh, that's wild. That's great. And would you, would you have a mountain in mind that you were thinking, Oh, I'd love to just go scale this one. Oh, you know what? Um, I would have to go back to my roots and, uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and probably go up to Tuckerman's Ravine because mm. um, that's where I used to hike uh, before my injury. Yeah. So go right back to where you started from, right? Mm-hmm. That's Get awesome. Get back on the horse. Get back on the horse. Terrific. Well, Jen French, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. And again, I want to tip my hat to uh, to our friend, Dr. Trevor Hudson, Dyson Hudson for bringing us together and hopefully you and I will get a chance to work together in the future. I'm, I'm looking into being an advocate for one of the studies, which I hope, you know, will, will help folks like me and, and other who have other guy, uh, men and women who have had SCIs in the future with exciting things that might be on the horizon. And so, uh, again, thank you so much for joining me and please continue to keep up with the amazing work that you and all your foundations are doing. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for uh, for inviting me and having me. And yeah, big big thanks to Trevor, but um, also thanks to your listeners for for listening and being involved in the SCI community. Uh, I think we're living in some really exciting times today. Exciting times indeed, Jen. Keep pushing the envelope on behalf of the SCI community. The work you and your colleagues do is appreciated more than you know, my friend. Thanks for carving out some time from your uber-busy schedule to join us here on the Quadcast. And for those of you that may not know, music has always played a large role in my life. From attending concerts back in the day to spending hours and hours at the Milburn High School track with my iPod earpods on 10, music has always moved me. Insomuch, I am thinking of producing an episode of songs like Black Gold, which is my intro and outro music, that have been with me throughout my 31-year odyssey with my SCI. 
There are a handful of songs that don't just sound good. They take me back to exact moments in time, while others contain lyrics that almost speak for my feelings and emotions from along this journey. There are some uplifting songs that motivate me to keep pushing when the going gets tough, and I will warn you some that are dark, deep, personal, and above all, real. So for those of you old enough to remember MTV, be on the lookout for a Behind the Music episode sometime soon. Thank you as always to Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company for mixing the show. Until we meet again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much left to do.